Disturbing Interest is a Horrible Histories, Terrible Mysteries podcast. The past, and sometimes the present, are often a bleak place. Listener discretion is advised. If you're a fan of Disturbing Interests, please like and subscribe. And for the love of God, tell a friend about us. Pretend you're a Mormon. Go door to door with the good news of Disturbing Interests. Preach our gospel, brothers and sisters, and non-gender binary siblings, to the world at large. Because remember, with us, you might be disturbed, but you're not alone. Welcome back to Disturbing Interest, everyone. I am Regina King, your evil queen, and sitting in her own gorgeous house is my ever-beautiful partner. Hi, I'm Quint. I mean, <clears throat> Lynn, uh, your docent of darkness. <laughs> <laughs> and that's right, we are doing Jaws of Palooza Part 2! Jaws 2D! Oh wait, no. Even Jawsier. Even Sharkier. I, I don't know. Yeah. Bigger, Sharkier, and Unbitten or something. <laughs> yeah. I... So this is our closing out the summer episode before we go into fall. While my life has been exploding with craziness and moving and trying to find a place, which let me tell y'all something. The Seattle market sucks. It sucks. Oh, yeah. Sucks. I cannot say that enough. I was ready to be like, we could build a shed in my backyard. You were. You were so sweet. You were like, a yurt? We could do a yurt. <laughs> We've had a yurt. We've had a hippie in a yurt. We could make it a nicer, fancier yurt. But yeah, it was, I was concerned. I was concerned for your household. Just a little concerned. Me too. Yeah, it's, it's nuts here. It really is. And people are like, oh, the homeless problem is so terrible. I'm like, you want to know why? Nobody can find a home, yeah. you know? It's, yeah, it's banana yeah. pants here. Oh, America. Oh, the world. What a time to be alive. I hate it. <laughs> I hate everything. It's the shittiest timeline. Also, I know that I'm preaching to the choir here because our listeners are all smart and with it and don't believe bullshit. But, like, get your damn shot. Come on. If you haven't, if you're on the fence, get off the fence and, and don't end up on a ventilator. Get the shot. You know, just do it. So personal note in my family, we actually have uh, my brother-in-law, the Hulk's husband of all people um, who got COVID and he is currently in the ICU and has been for several weeks. And we are all very, very hopeful he is going to live. Um, he has so far avoided the ventilator and that has been just a straight act of god or yahweh or buddha or um this blind spaghetti monster whoever else you believe in whatever higher deity that is out there and looking over his dumb ass who did not get the vaccine yes get get your shot hey i found out i'm gonna get the best birthday present ever in december a booster shot Woohoo! yeah well I get to get a whole nother vaccine because I'm immunocompromised Yay. after we move into our new place this weekend. It's... So next week, I'm going to feel like shit for another couple of days. But whatever it takes, whatever it takes. Yep. It's going to be like the Oprah of, of vaccines. You get a shot. And you get a shot. Yeah, it's um, Delta did not come to play. Delta came to slay. <laughs> she did. 
as terrible as that is, all I could think in my brain was, yes, Queen Slay. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> She's, she is the biggest, baddest, meanest mother of them all, and she just knocking people out left and right. I've got, I've had several friends now, fully vaccinated, not doing crazy things. Get it, you know? Uh, and mercifully, it was a very easy, gentle experience as far as COVID goes for them, but it wasn't fun by any stretch of the imagination. So yeah, just like I said, get your shot, wear your mask, don't do crazy things, and let's just get this this wave behind us, please. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Anyway, you have you have fun wine for us, yes? I do. So I've moved into the world of canned faux cocktail-like substances. And I thought that since this is a, um, again, we're saying goodbye to summer. And and even though this is technically like a a thing that happened in in the upper Atlantic and not in the tropics, I would go with the Cutwater Bali High Tiki Rum Mai Tai because sure, it's noon on on a Wednesday. Let's go for it. Yep. And it's uh, it is oh, it's twelve and twelve point five percent alcohol by volume, gluten free, from San Diego, a very tiki part of the world, and it is a mai tai made with cut water Bali high rum, cut water bar- barrel aged rum, and natural flavors, featuring a blend of our award winning rums with notes of pineapple coconut and citrus. Our mai tai is a tiki inspired cocktail escape. It features two. Plus, the plus scares me, shots of Cutwater Bali High Gold, Tiki Gold Rum, Cutwater Barrel Aged Rum, and Natural Pineapple and Coconut. And I'm just going to crack this bad boy open and, uh, you know, have a summer moment. Oh, boy, it is, it does not want to give up its juice. It is not, uh, it is not interested. Uh, I'm going to have to get, like, a thing to pry the can Am I the only one who thinks every time I hear natural flavors... That that means that it's fever after. Oh, it could be. It could be. Oh, there we go. I, I, I had to actually pry it open with um with the screwdriver. Nice. So <laughs> that's this is just how this show is going to go this week. Okay. Keeping it classy. Oh my god, here we go. Does not want to give up its delicious booty. It smells fruity and pineapple-y. Oh, that's not bad. It's um definitely sweet. A very um. Very cool. Oh, it, it, you know what? It tastes just a little bit like um, when you were a kid and you'd go to the beach and your mom would just slather the shit out of you with that copper tone, you know, that smells like fake coconut. You get uh-huh. it in your mouth. Yeah, it tastes a little bit like that. It tastes like that. I can't say that I was mm. ever one for licking suntan lotion, so I'm still not sure what it tastes like, but that can't taste good. I mean, it's, I, it, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those ones where I'm like, this is probably going to taste better the longer I go through this. <laughs> but, you know, I would say, honestly, toss this in one of those uh, plastic coconuts with the straw, or plastic pineapples with the straw, which, of course, I, I have those. Throw a little ice in it, sit out in your hammock, and enjoy the last days of summer isolation before you go into fall isolation. <laughs> Winter isolation, and um, you'd probably be pretty happy with this and thing. That's yeah. when you switch from a giant fake pineapple to a giant fake pumpkin. Yes, yeah, no, I'm pumpkin spice, mm. 
my dies for everyone. Yeah, no, this is it's not bad, and it's not as it's not as powerful as I feared that it would be. It tastes fairly kind of watered down, it, which is a, probably a good thing given that it's literally the size of a can of soda, which is a lot. <laughs> You should see the sneer on my face right now. The old bartender in me is like, that's not a drink. Why are you even bothering with that? I should make you a real drink. You know, it's it does. It tastes like at, like the end of a Mai Tai where the ice has melted a lot. And it's very like, you know, a little bit of the cocktail, a lot of the melted ice water. Which again, given that this is in a can and is sort of meant to be enjoyed like poolside or I don't know at noon on a Wednesday while you're recording a podcast that's probably not a bad thing you know yeah yeah no I'm with you I'm with you and you know this is perfect as uh, my my story will tell you uh Robert Shaw who played Quint got just absolutely shit-faced because he was a method actor and I will tell you more about that in my story but I feel like I'm I'm very Quint right now as I, I get mildly shit-faced <laughs> p.s can i make a request to anyone in hollywood who is listening who has any kind of power over this can people please stop casting method actors as the fucking joker i mean me being a huge batman fan you would think i'd be all for this because they do some amazing deliveries on the joker but please just make mark hamill do it make make mark the, hamill yes. do it yeah he's great Yes. Mark Hamill. Just just yes. make it be Mark Hamill. Or at least Every his time. voice. Every time. Mark Hamill. Every time. We, I actually do discuss that a little later. Not specifically that, but yes. Yeah, method acting in general. Here, here, feel, my, feel my eyes just rolling back in my head on that one. Yeah. Method actors, I understand. Choosing to play parts that are going to be detrimental to your psyche or your health, I do not when you're a method actor. I know that you take what you can get, but... I mean, there should be some questions asked for the actor's own safety, I feel, before casting. You mean all of Christian Bale's life? Yeah. Yeah, that guy? Yeah, don't do that. Just just don't do that. Yep. Me, I'm not a method podcaster. I'm, I'm just a rummy. So there you go. That's why I'm doing this. <laughs> I am disturbing. Therefore, I am a podcaster. But I have a story for you guys, and this came about mainly because I was like, have I ever told you this story when we were joking around about robbing a bank to fund our independent lifestyles that we wish we had? <laughs> it seems like a good idea to me, but what do I know? I'm a method actor rummy, you know? And I immediately followed that whole conversation with, have I ever told you the story of the train bank? And you I were like no the train bank like it i i'm just imagining like thomas the tank engine with like little bags of money going and like scrooge mcduck riding on it and i'm like uh, no i i don't know about the train bank tell me more i like your train bank better than my train bank oh, okay all right so the train bank is in fayetteville arkansas fayetteville arkansas people it actually is a very lovely place i i'm pro fayetteville arkansas anyway it's very lovely. I've never been. I I know nothing about it other than Fayetteville. It's in Arkansas, which I can vaguely point to on a map. And hey, that's good it. good for you. Some people can't even do that. I've driven through Arkansas. Yeah, well, yeah. Arkansas on a whole, yeah, it's not that I have any hate on Arkansas. I lived there for a very long time. 
but I lived there for a very long time. So, um, but I, I like the Northwest corner of Arkansas is the one that I would recommend to people. Anyway, in downtown Fayetteville, Arkansas, there is the college, there's a street called Dixon and Dixon's like the party street for the college kids in the area. Okay. And there are some, you know, tons of bars, restaurants, coffee houses, and a couple of banks. And one of the banks is right next to the train tracks next to where this old train depot used to be that's now a restaurant. And it is an old converted train car. Okay. And it was made into the bank. All right. That doesn't seem super crazy yet. Right. Yet. Right. Train, train bank. bank. Okay. No, no. I'm, I'm following. Sure. Also downtown were like the big library that won all these awards and the police department, which was, mm, I'm going to say maybe six blocks away from the train bank. Uh, three up, three over, I think. Yeah. At least three times a year. Needless to say. I, uh, let me go back a couple steps. Needless to say, this train bank is located in one of the worst places to try to get out of in the city. Like, if there's a game going on, good, good luck. Good luck. Kiss an hour of your life goodbye if you're in this neighborhood and there's a game going on. If it's, in, like, schools letting out... Again, good luck. Just kiss your life goodbye. I used to work down there on Dixon as a bartender. I know the traffic got insane down there. While I was working on Dixon as a bartender, P.S. always worked as a bartender a part-time for years and years of my life. So for those of you going, I thought you were in HR. Yes. Yes, I, I was still doing what I do, but it was just uh, also serving cocktails on the side. Anyhow, so <laughs> this train bank, while I was working as a bartender down there, the train bank every single year would have at least three people try to rob it. At least three people try to rob it a year. And every single time they got caught to this day, I can only speculate that the reason people held up the train bank so often is because it was actually a train car bank. And somewhere in the back of all of our minds, all we want to do is be that Wild West train robber and stick him up. This is a robbery, you know? And so every time I think of bank robbers, I think of two things. One, the train bank. And two, the successful bank robber who was eventually captured in Oregon who built a giant treehouse home. That's that's what I think of. Those are my reference points. A giant treehouse home? Mm -hmm. With his ill-gotten bank? Yes. Oh. Ill-gotten gains. Financed his treehouse dream through robbing train car banks aha not train car banks if he had robbed the train bank he would have been caught <laughs> because he'd been stuck in traffic mm -hmm. right next to the police station i mean if you're gonna rob a bank 
be smarter is what I'm saying. I, maybe maybe like robbers were like, well, they can't have any real security in there since it's just a little train car. Heck, why don't I just, you know, hitch it to the back of my, my you know, Ford pickup and drag it away? It's a train car. I mean, maybe that was, I, I don't know. I like I to know. believe that every single person who robbed that bank wore a cowboy hat and a bandana. Yelled, yeehaw, stick him up. This here's a train robbery. Yes. Oh. Every single one. I mean, it would still be terrifying to be in the bank when somebody did that, but it would be just like a little bit more fun, maybe? I refused to go to the train bank. Uh, At the time, I was dating a cop, and he... He would tell me these stories of the train bank robberies or attempted robberies. And yeah, I refuse, refuse to to this day. If I go back to Fayetteville, I will never go to the train bank. I don't want to be. That's too high of a chance of being involved in a bank robbery. Nice. Well, I mean, maybe a shark tank bank would make more sense. Nobody's going in there. Sharks. Have your bank like right there in the aquarium in the shark tank. Circling, circling. Yeah. Shark tank bank. Somebody sticks you up, your security button just releases the shark. Releases the shark. <laughs> the walls fall away. You may die, but yep. you're taking them out with you. With with freaking laser beams. Sharks with freaking laser beams. That's that's exactly it. That's what I always reckon is like my home security, because spoiler alert, I don't have any. Now you're all going to come find my house and steal my stuff. Our TV is nice. That's about it. But I figure if you're going to break into my house, you're going to come around the back of the house, right? And that back of the house, that room that you would open that door into is where the rats live. The rat cages are. I reckon you open that door, you look in, you're like, oh, hell no. No, no, no. You know, there's just cages, these little glittering eyes. You just shut the door, you back away. You're like, what do they have upstairs? Alligators and shit? I'm out of here. That's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) That's my my redneck home security right there. After my dad died, There were people breaking into our family property and trying to steal things. And my mom was no demure wilting flower. And one night she heard somebody on the property. And so she took her gun and she fired into the air. And she heard somebody on the property scream, Jesus Christ, don't shoot me. And she goes, you gave me a place to aim. And she just sees this figure running as fast as he can off of their property and that is the type of spirit in which i was raised so wow (laughs) my mom just had her little derringer in the purse so in case like you know people who wanted to break in and like you know steal cat tranquilizers uh from the vet clinic she could be like pow pow you know tiny holes in them well before we go into generational trauma and what that looks like sure sure (laughs) just dive right into my story here so i am doing the lady of the dunes which is probably the most famous unsolved murder in massachusetts history and jaws related and jaws related yeah. Kind of? Yeah. Sort of? So yeah. this is one of those interesting mysteries that has peripheral tie-ins to two things I love. One, we mentioned Jaws, and the other, Stephen King. I know. Crazy, right? This is the story that just keeps on giving. Yeah. And this is part two in our Jawsapalooza episodes. 
we thought it would be appropriate to bring you the story of the Lady of the Dunes because it does have this kind of tie-in. And by the way, another great band name in the making, the Lady of the Dunes. Who knew that the best band names would be found in disturbing interests like right? true crime? Right? Every time or every other time we're like, oh, good band name. Now, if only we could play some instruments. That or Bruce the Shark. That's the other one you're going to get from this. One. Bruce the Shark. I'm, I am down for listening to either of those bands. For sure. Provincetown, Massachusetts is a community that is more, the more I investigated it, the more I think I might need to move there. So I actually have, I, that's my retirement plan. Uh, it's a dumb one, but it's, you know, I, the weather here doesn't suck enough. Let's go to someplace very similar to here, but with better cemeteries and even shittier weather. That is my plan. And a higher yes. cost of living. Oh, yeah. 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 No, this is a dumb plan, but it's my, I love Cape Cod to a degree that I cannot even, even tell you. Well, I've been mad as hell that I haven't been able to get there in the last two years. I'm all like, come on, get your shots, assholes. I'm I'm going to go into it a little bit before diving into the story. So our listeners will get to hear a little bit about uh, Provincetown. It's awesome. It is described as a seaside haven for artists. Huh? Huh? And members of the Alphabet Mafia. Eh? Eh? Yep. And the pictures show a lovely city that could be straight out of the painting. It is gorgeous yes it is and it's charming like i said apparently i just want to live in one of those few places in the country with real estate higher than it is here in seattle oh yeah i found this gorgeous house right in the heart of downtown provincetown massachusetts this is how much i liked the place guys i started looking at property three million dollars but it has a shop on the bottom so mr mao could run a shop and we could live on the two stories above, you know. So if anyone has three million lying around and wants to support my initiative to try to bring weird and creepy to Provincetown, Massachusetts, hit me up. I, I, my plan is somebody, I find D.B. Cooper's money oh, uh, nice. somewhere in my backyard. And then I can go buy one of the old moldering Gilded Age mansions. Yes. In Newport, Rhode Island, which is weird as shit as well, and open like a weird printmaking artist colony. That's I my like my main goal. Except, you know, nobody, no, no one in my family has millions. I'm not getting rich. I'm going to inherit like an old dog, and that's going to be about it. And a harpoon. But, you know, it's fine. And a harpoon. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. all I got. Yeah. Uh, my, my parents are dead. I'm inheriting nothing. No. I've inherited you what I have had inherited. <laughs> You can have half the harpoon. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. You can use it on alternate weeks. I yeah. have a I have a very old pretty pheasant feather that I inherited. That's cool. <laughs> That's nice. When I was packing things up, I packed up this pheasant feather and I was like, "Jesus, how old is this?" And I started thinking about it. I was like, "Yep. Yep. This is 19 years old." <laughs> it's an old ass pheasant. It's an old ass pheasant feather, yep. We digress. So it's 50 miles down the road from Martha's Vineyard. Important. Which we will totally get to, too. Yep. Yes. Yeah. And for those of you listeners who do not know a lot about the East Coast of America, it's smack dab in the area of that the uber wealthy like to keep summer homes. Yep. 
Normally, it averages a population of around 3,000, but over the summer, the population soars to somewhere around 60,000. Fun fact, it is also an area that notorious mobsters like to vacation, people like Whitey Bulger, and that might be relevant in our story later. Yeah, it's a fascinating mix there. It really, really is. A little history on Provincetown. On May 15th, 1602, Bartholomew, which, by the way, one of my favorite new old names, Bartholomew Gosnold made landfall to what he thought was an island and promptly named it the Shoal Hope. However, after an extremely prodigious day of fishing for cod, he decided to name it Cape Cod. The Cape Cod area was known to be home of the Nauset Native American tribe, and they often had dealings with the Wampanoag, who were their neighbors and their closest relatives. They spoke the same language, traded, and for those of you not super familiar with the history of colonizers in America, Provincetown Harbor was where the Mayflower set anchor, and the little town of Plymouth is directly across the bay from the city in question. So what I'm telling you is that the predominantly white elite have been vacationing in the area of the first colonizers to our fair country, like some kind of strange yearly wasp migration for decades. Yeah, it's historical as fuck over there. Yep. Well, about as historical as you can get in the U.S. Yep. Anyway, terrible colonizer history aside, it does seem to have a lovely... uh, it does seem to be a lovely and accepting city now. And Mr. Mao and I are hoping to visit it sometime soon, as soon as we can, at least, like you were saying. Maybe we can go together. It'd be great. Oh, yeah. And then, uh, like, so Barnstable, like, up in the, a, a bit of ways from there is you should visit Elephant House. And Elephant House was Ooh. the ramshackly, delightfully ramshackly cottage where Edward Gorey lived. Oh, and I it is one him. of, oh, it's, I have to say honestly, and this is this is my personal digression, that was one of the most um, affirming places I've ever been in my life. Oh. I went to visit it and I was like, I'm just going to cry the whole time because Edward Gorey lives like I live and isn't, I mean, is a weirdo, but is like the best was the best weirdo. Nice. And just, I just, everything about that. I was like, yep, yep. Oh, checks that box. Yes, I do that. Oh, yep, yep, yep. So I highly recommend it. It's it's just a magical, wonderful, weird, authentically weird place. Like just New England, if you are a creepy weirdo, it's for you. It is for you. Nice. Yes. Nice. I Yeah, I really think that we should plan a trip there as soon as we can. I know that we're going to partially because, well, let me put it to you like this. My tired, moving, addled brain caused me to sit up out of a dead sleep and think, actually say, we need to move to Provincetown, Massachusetts, middle of the night. I kind of want to live in, in Salem just for a number of other reasons. But yes, absolutely. Like, I, I know, I know, every, you know, there's, ew, mass holes. Uh, but I, I kind of like Massachusetts. I'm not going to lie. And, and yes, Rhode Island is a pit, but it's a pit that I enjoy, you know? I mean, come on, I'm, I'm from the Mid-Atlantic. These places seem fine to me, you know? I it's see fine. nothing wrong with them. Yeah. However, I haven't spent a great deal of time there yet. But apparently, I, I woke up and I'm just like, mm, this is where we're going. Let's do it. Let's go. 
I think we're all just feeling a little trapped where we are right yeah, now. Yeah, I think so too. It is a town that is idyllic enough that I'm going to vacation there, like I keep on saying. But sure. you and John Waters. <laughs> Great. Something to look forward to. I have so many things that I want to talk to him about. Oh my God, yes. But I'm bringing it up for one of my stories. And we all know that I'm the darker side of terrible on this program, which means that this case, as tragic as it is, seems to be magnified by the lens of historical community safety and picturesque grandeur. On July 26, 1974, 12-year-old Leslie Metcalf was walking on the beach. It's often reported that she was walking with her dog, but that's not true. The dog wasn't hers. It was actually a family friend's dog that had followed her. I find it interesting how many cases have random, inappropriate dog ownership misreported in them. Get the dogs right, people. Right? Well, it always makes me think, okay, if the reporters got the fact about the dog wrong, what else is wrong, you know? But then again, I also have a extreme hatred for uh, yellow journalism and look a little harder at each news report <laughs> than most people do, I think. Like based on the, you need to start your own dog accuracy website so that you can, you know, rate news stories by whether they got the dog correct. Yes, hello. I'm calling from the dog accuracy news reporting site. It says that you found a body with a dog. Was it indeed yours? Okay, thank you. Like that would be the weirdest call ever. I, I think you should do it because I have so much free time. Yeah. The girl came across what she thought was a deer at first until she investigated closer and discovered that it was, in fact, a decaying body of a woman left in the dunes. Now, she has actually passed on, Leslie Metcalf has, but in an interview with her sister, I read that the reason she thought it was a deer was because of the color of the skin. I thought it was kind of refreshing to hear, though, that somebody came across a body and did not automatically assume that they had found a mannequin, because everyone seems to. It's never a mannequin, and it's never a deer. No, but it is nice to mix it up every now and oh, then. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The police were quickly called. Well, actually, first the park rangers were called, but then the police were called then after. And upon arriving at the scene, they found two sets of footprints that led to a mutilated body of a young woman who had been left in the elements for around two weeks. She was laying face down on a green beach towel, which I have to pause here and remind you all that any towel can be a beach towel as long as that beach is involved and you try hard enough. Yeah, it's all about perspective. She was 5'6". 145 pounds, athletic, had expensive dental work, and between the ages of 20 and 49. And yes, that's I, a range. Yeah, I know it's a really large age gap, but considering the condition of the body, I think it's understandable to see why they had a hard time nailing it down more. You would think that they would look at uh, the pelvic bone and kind of try to age it from there like they do in most autopsy cases of this kind of um, value. But I don't think they 
they stripped her down to the bones, you know, and that's what they have to do to do that. There were a blue bandana and a pair of jeans under her face folded like a pillow. She had painted pink toenails and her long red hair was pulled back into a ponytail. She very well could have had matching fingernail polish, but that's just something we don't know since her hands, a forearm, and several of her teeth were removed. It's long been thought that this mutilation was done as a way to obscure her identity. The autopsy told police that she had been murdered by a crushing blow to the left side of her head, and her head itself was almost decapitated from her body. She had been sexually assaulted, but luckily for her, it looks like that was done post-mortem. And there were no defensive wounds around, found on her, which led police to believe that either she knew her attacker or was taken by surprise somehow. Yeah, the whole like post-mortem like, sexual assault, it's weird because on one hand, I'm happy for the victim that they did not have to experience that additional horror in their last moments but it adds an extra oh god what a yep. yeah you know to it ew yeah. it adds like i'm never like oh murder that seems nice but like this just adds like the oh god no frosting to the oh shit no cake mm -hmm. you know yeah yeah and because it was in the 70s who knows if they collected any kind of semen sample sure. or if there was anything to collect um, 70s though probably but who knows so I, I truly believe though and, and you will see as we talk about the case more that if they had something they would have run it by now and we would have heard a little bit more about it. You'd think like Paul Holes and Billy would be on that case but no probably not. I'm yeah. truly surprised that they have not reached out to Paul Holes. They may not have the yeah come on Paul Holes get on it go Paul go Emma Billy. Emma Billy. I know you love your Billy. I do. I do love my Billy. And I am like, I also have a, a little lady crush on Alexis. Side note, have you seen the 2020 um, episode on the Golden State Killer? I have not. I have not. You should watch it. It's up on Hulu. You should watch it. Both Billy and Paul Holes and Paul Haynes are interviewed. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Oh, is this see I feel like this is slightly more healthy than being obsessed with serial killers is being obsessed with like detectives maybe maybe I don't know just a little bit I have no idea all I know is my interests are disturbing and range uh widely so sure anyway back to the story when toxicology came back it was discovered that there were no drugs or alcohol in her system either and naturally, the longer she went unidentified and the murder went unsolved, the louder the disturbed residents became. As many as 30 detectives poured over thousands of missing persons cases and leads that came across their desks in an effort to identify the victim with no luck. This was a bitter defeat after spending hours coming through the dooms, initially looking for any additional clues. The f they found tire prints that the footprints were linked to. So the footprints went to these tire prints and back, or to the body and back to the tire prints. It's kind of crazy to me that, like, she was dead for two weeks, and yet in these dunes, the footprints were still visible. They hadn't gotten blown away or rained on or whatnot. Well, if you look at pictures of the dunes themselves, it's not 
like you would imagine a sand dune to be. It was actually a copse of piney scrub. So it was... So be protected. Yes, it looks a bit protected from the wind. And the only reason that the little girl found it was because the dog who had followed them, he sent something and started barking and ran towards the body, which is why she came across it, because she went after the dog. Dogs love carrion. Dogs do love carrion. If, if you ask me why I never let Rocky off his lead... I don't want to find a body. That's a pain in the ass. There are many reasons, but I don't think I would be able to get over him chewing on a hand and bringing it to me. You know, (laughs) it's just not something I want to imagine. Look, Mom, I brought you something. That's why I have cats. Cats are like, I don't give a shit. I'm not going over. That's disgusting. No. Cats don't care about crime. Cats are like, fuck that. They got what they deserved. They were asking for it. Cats cause crime. Yep, pretty much. Yeah. Those combined with the lack of blood and additional evidence led investigators to believe that she was killed elsewhere and dragged to the location using the towel, meaning that her body was posed the way it was found. Using every tool that they could think of trying to identify the mysterious lady, a clay facial reconstruction was made five years after she was found in 1979. She was also exhumed in 1980 to see if any additional evidence could be found so they could find the killer. They truly used everything they could think of. And as technology improved, they used more things that they could. In 2000, she was exhumed again to gather DNA, but it didn't produce her identity. In 2010, they did another facial reconstruction using her skull, which had remained unburied the entire time, I might add. And if somebody is out there that can tell me what happens with a human skull in cases like these, please do. Because I want to know, does it just sit in the evidence box Because I have this image of random skulls in boxes now, and I'm not sure how to feel about it. And I do know of one case in which the police chief kept a skull of an unidentified victim in his office. Okay, that's a choice. I think I'm less okay with that, mainly because... I can't help but assume that he carried on conversations with a skull. I just picture him going full, alas, poor Yorick with it regularly. Right? I, okay. Like, I, I would probably talk to the skull. I probably would if it were in my oh, office. Absolutely. I, I would probably, like, give it a hat. I would, oh, what, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you look cold. Would you like a hat? hat? I would give it a hat. I can't a have scarf. human remains. I can't. I do have a, you know, I have a skull pile, right? You do know my, my skull collection. Yes. But it's in no humans yet. Not yet. No humans. Yeah. All ethically sourced. It's fine. And when it does happen, when you do get that human skull, apparently it will be wearing a hat. It's getting a hat seasonally. Seasonal hats for the skull. Yeah. Well, at least I know if I ever find a human skull for you that I need to knit a hat to put on it. Oh, yeah. To give to you as well. Yeah. For sure. Yes. So there were several promising leads over the years. In 1978, a Canadian woman stated that she had seen her father strangle a woman in Massachusetts around 1972. But when police tried to follow up with the witness, she was, as we say, in the wind. They never found her again. 
yikes. Yeah. Well, All of that is a yikes for yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah, right? Who knows? I have so many questions there, and I feel like maybe maybe a little bit more effort needs to be put forth, but... I've, I've, I witnessed Barry bludgeon a trout in 1975. Uh, you know, I was like a year old, but sure, he bludgeoned a trout. That's uh, Yeah, but that's about it. I don't. Yeah, yikes. Yikes. You know, I have dissociative disor- disorder. If I witnessed anyone actually murder somebody, I wouldn't remember it. <laughs> I feel like, no, I'm just going to file that under. I can't handle that right yeah, now. Yeah, that, I, so I can honestly say I have never witnessed anyone murder anyone. <laughs> Uh, that you know of. That you know of. That Maybe I know you've of. seen 700 murders, but your brain was just like, la, 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 nope. That's going nope. in the nope hole. Yeah. Tucking that ch- tucking that right down the nope well. Not going to deal with that. Which, fun fact, as somebody with dissociative disorder, like, when you have it severe enough and have been under uh, therapy as much as I have for it, you begin to recognize traits of when you are dissociating oh, I'm not going to remember, like, the past month. I know this. No. I know this now. This conversation never happened. Nice. So, I'm glad we're getting it on record because oh, nice. later you can be like, do you remember this? And I'll be like, no. Nope. It'll be incriminating. Yeah, yes. Nothing. Anyway, a woman came forward in 1974 because the composite looked like her missing sister from Boston but eventually she was ruled out. And there were several other people, missing people whose family members came forward and they were ruled out as well. But another lead that was considered as a very strong possibility was that the victim may have been missing inmate Rory Kessinger, who had disappeared from Plymouth County Jail on May 26, 1973. Rory was a super interesting character, and I wish that her case had more of a spotlight on it. I encourage all of you who enjoy these weird little tales of ours to go out and look up Rory Kessinger. Basically, though, Rory ran away from home as a teenager, and by the age of 24, was an established drug dealer, bank robber, and gun runner with mob ties who was wanted in four known states. Wow, she's a go-getter. Right? If those weren't boss bitch goals by themselves, some of her antics... Dang, I'm like 47 and I haven't done like any of that. Dang. (laughs) Well, we have discussed robbing a bank and have decided it will not be at the train bank. Right, because of the traffic (laughs) issues. Anyway, some of her antics truly have the stuff of legends in them. My personal favorite was when an off-duty police officer found her wandering around the woods in nothing but lingerie. As one does. As one does. And she told him that she had been raped. Not cool. And when he took her into his house and called the police, she managed to get his gun away from him and then told him, I'm sorry, but I'll have to kill you. Okay. Turns out Rory was high as balls. Okay. Tripping balls, lingerie, wood ramble. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. We've all been there. Sure, why not? Fortunately, the officer was able to disarm her before she could shoot him. And I wish I could say that was the only time that she pulled a gun on a cop. 
But it wouldn't even be the only time that night that she pulled a gun on a cop. Jesus, God. Yeah. I'm not a fan of cops, but I'm also even more so not a fan of anyone pulling a gun on anyone. Yeah. Later on in the evening, she would strike again, managing to disarm another officer. Jesus, God. This what is she? Is this Harley Quinn? She might Cause be. Because I feel like this might be Harley Quinn. She might be. And then she ended up being forcibly disarmed for a second time. Sweet Jesus. It was for these two attempted murder charges that she was being held on in May when she used a, get this, smuggled hacksaw to cut through the bars of her cell. Was it in a cake? Oh my God, I bet it was in a cake. This gets better. Oh my God shimmy down a makeshift rope out of bed sheets like a 1920s laurel and hardy caper come to life wow and disappear forever i can't tell if i'm like horrified or like my captain my queen on this one being someone with the moniker of the evil queen part of me really wishes that rory had just escaped got cleaned up, and found a good life. Or a less disorganized life of crime. Either way. I wanted to be like a Lady Robin Hood. Yes. Wow. I am here for Rory. However, associates of hers confirmed rumors to the police chief later on that she had been killed by one of her criminal associates shortly after her disappearance. So... Uh, police were hopeful that Rory might be a good match for their victim. Similar appearances, proximity, and the removal of her hands might all fit with identifying a local escaped criminal. Escaped crime lord? Crime lady? Crime Crime duchess? Duchess of crime? My captain. Oh, my captain. Yes. (laughs) Captain of crime. My crime captain. Yes. Low-key, though, she's kind of a hero of mine just for the lady balls that it took. Oh, my God. Wow. However, when the second exhumation was done on the victim, police compared the DNA to that of Rory's 80-something-year-old mother and found no familial link. So she was ruled out. I wonder, though, if in general, now that familial DNA and things like GEDmatch and so on are becoming a thing, maybe? Well, I will go into that. Ooh, so excite. So So excite, much DNA. It does seem like police have really been trying everything possible to solve this case. And as recent as April of 2019, the state was bringing in DA Greg Trotten from California to consult. Now, any of you who are as obsessed as I am, at least, with the Golden State Killer will recognize that he is one of the DAs who was involved with the GSK case. They were going to attempt to do genetic genealogy on this unknown victim, Our Lady of the Dunes, but nothing with this case can be straightforward. There were issues with the chain of custody of the DNA. Yeah, apparently the specialist who they used um, in this DNA collection was also a professor and had let students handled the dna which broke the chain of custody gotcha yeah and the sample itself was taken from an embalmed body 
So it was usable, but damaged, like so many of us know, sure. once it's been involved. Hey, I'm currently embalmed uh, <laughs> thanks to this tiki rum Mai Tai, and I am definitely damaged. So I feel you. I feel nice. you. DNA. Yep. So usable, but damaged. Much that's like my me. sanity. Oh my god, yes. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. my new tagline. Usable but damaged. damaged. Yeah, yeah. Light inside is broken, but I still work. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> exactly that. Light inside is broken, but I still work. Oh, I like that one. Yep. That meme is my is my lifestyle. <laughs> the meme that I sent you that said, Jesus, look at the time. That is one of my favorite things I've ever seen on the internet. I, I have shared that so many. I love it. It's it's this terrible clock that's like, I believe it's like made out of like a, wood. a slab of wood that has had a decoupage of white Jesus kind of looking up into the heavens. But like where his eyes are fixed is a little clock that has been stuck under the wood. And it's, Jesus, will you look at the time? <laughs> This is why we. This is why we have the internet. This is yes, why we have the internet. Yes, this is exactly why. Shout out to my friend Cameron who sent that to me, and listens to the show. I definitely appreciate it. That's what I want for my birthday. If I can have a shot of uh, my booster shot and a Jesus look at the time clock, I would. I would die happy at that point. Done. Yep. Done. I will make that shit happen. <laughs> Whether I have to make it myself or not, it Giving will happen. Giving you a happen. craft project. Nice. <laughs> I need a Jesus when you look at the time clock. It seems like the authorities involved, as much as they want to solve the case, really just want to identify her. And she is currently the oldest Jane Doe on record in Massachusetts State. So they're still moving forward with attempting this genetic gene genealogy trace, even though the DNA uh, was, the chain of custody was compromised. But in 2015, Joe Hill, the son of one of my favorite yep. authors, Stephen King. And an awesome author in his own right. Charles Talent yes. Manx scares the absolute living fuck pants out of me. So thanks, Joe Hill, you creep. Nice. Scaring me. Good job. Yeah, no, seriously, good job. Thanks, man. Yeah. But he made an interesting connection to one of our favorite movies, Jaws. He was watching the 4th of July beach scene and saw a woman in a blue bandana that looked like the reconstruction. He took his suspicions to the police, but has admitted that it's very far out there chance that it is actually her. And he was reading previously kind of a citizen sleuth how-to book, which is why he took his suspicions to the police and said, this is what I have found. Um, but as crazy as the theory might be, the filming was nearby and drew a sure lot was. of attention because it was at... Martha, Martha's Vineyard, which Indeed we referenced. it was. Yes, yep. at the top of the show. So it wasn't, it wasn't completely out of line to think that it might be her. And Joe mused on his blog, what if the young murder victim no one has ever been able to identify has been seen by hundreds of millions of people in a beloved summer classic and they didn't even know that they were looking at her? Dun, dun, dun. As for the suspects of who killed her, well, anyone in law enforcement will tell you that it's exponentially harder to ID a killer 
when you can't even ID the victim. Right? I know it wasn't me because I would have been like a newborn. Yeah, I wasn't even alive yet, so I'm good. However, in 1981, police received a tip that a woman who was seen in the company of mob associate Whitey Bulger in the area around the same time looked surprisingly like her. When Bulger was finally captured, the police were hopeful that additional witnesses that had feared reprisal would come forward, but no one ever did. It's understandable that Bulger was a suspect. He was known for removing hands, heads, or teeth to avoid identifying his victims, and he was known to frequent Provincetown. And, let's face it, Whitey was not above killing women, considering, no, no, one of the people he was uh, convicted of murdering was a woman. He was not a good guy. Not a good man. No. No. In fact, Bulger was murdered himself in prison, though, so unless something drastic happens that can link them, it is nothing more than suspect at this time. Another suspect was convicted killer Haddon Clark, who confessed to the crime in the early 2000s. This is the point where I'd like to pause and ask you to look up Haddon Clark's mugshot, please. Okay, hang on. Go into the computer. Oh, yeah, it even pulls it right up in the Google suggestions. Now that you are looking at that 1992 mugshot, I ask you, is that not everything you would imagine a suspected serial killer to look like? Jesus Christ! Like, it looks like he doesn't have eyelids. He just licks his eyeballs. <laughs> like, just like, like, a, like a lizard. Like, yeah, yeah, no, that, that guy doesn't look nice. No. You don't look nice, sir. No. <laughs> the problem with Clark, though, other than being a suspected serial killer, is that he is a paranoid schizophrenic who has confessed oh. to dozens of other gotcha. crimes. In the two cases of murder that he has been convicted, he led the police to the bodies. So, I mean, clearly he hid them well. And in 2000, Clark led the police to one other thing. He took them to his grandparents' house, where he instructed them to dig a hole in the backyard. Okay. The police unearthed a bucket with over 200 pieces of jewelry in it including the class ring of his last victim, Laura Hotling. Yikes! He told them that they were the trophies he had taken from his victims. Oh, yikes! Again! Yeah. And considering that the two murders he was convicted for were extremely different, as well as opportunity-based, I could believe it's possible If what he alleges is true, I just hope that not all of the people who owned that jewelry were killed. Let's hope for petty theft. Yeah. Yay for petty theft. Right. Ultimately, this case is not one that's just going to fall off the radar of law enforcement. And I hope that they're able to make something out of the genetic genealogy trace and at least give the victim a name. Or maybe make something more out of Haddon Clark's confession, because he did at one point 
send a note confessing to a friend of his with a drawing saying that the hands were buried in his grandparents' backyard, but nothing has come of that, so who knows. But hopefully one day they will be able to at least give her a name. Yeah, that would be nice. And that is my story of the Lady of the Dunes. Wow, that that was that was an awesome one. That's Thank like you. that's fun because it's Jaws, but it's like Jaws off the beaten path, right? Mine is obvious Jaws. <laughs> Hit us with obvious Jaws. I'm here for it. Mine is Jaws right on the nose of that mechanical shark. By God, Bruce, Bruce. So mine is actually just a very short the making of Jaws. How did that go? So not so much disturbing as just like, wow, Hollywood. So the making of Jaws is possibly as horrific and traumatic as the finished film itself was to audiences. And oddly enough, there would actually not be Jaws without Cosmopolitan magazine. Really? Yeah, that's right. The publication more famous for raunchy sex tips and scantily clad young fashion models on the cover than for its interest in marine biology played an incredibly important role in getting the most famous shark movie of all time made. So you see Cosmo's famous editor, Helen Gurley Brown, who just fascinating character in Mm -hmm. her own right. She was the wife of Universal Studios producer, David Brown, same last name. Yeah, yeah. And he and Richard D. Zanuck, who another producer at Universal, happened to see an item in a preprint of the literature section of an upcoming edition of Cosmopolitan magazine that mentioned a really killer book that was about to be published. That book, of course, was Jaws by Peter Benchley. So the magazine's book editor had written out just a basic summary of the plot of the novel on a little card and ended the text with the line, might make a good movie. And Brown happened to see this, and he and Zanuck got a, hold, got a hold of a copy of the book before it went into actual publication, and they just, like, devoured it in one night. They just, like, cover to cover, stayed up all night, just hooked on it. And they were so excited by what they read that they immediately bought the movie rights to this novel before it was even on bookstore shelves. Damn. And they paid top dollar for it. $175,000 in 1973 money, wow. which would be the equivalent today of almost a million dollars. And as filming went on, Brown was quoted as saying that he wished they'd actually read that book at least twice before yelling, shut up and take my money, because <laughs> they would have realized that much of the story was going to be absolutely impossible to film with the technology that existed at the time. Oh, Wow. So remember, Jaws came out in 1975, well before any kind of CGI. I mean, basically, there was like Pong. That's what you could play Pong, Mm -hmm. the little boop, boop, boop game. That was it, you know? And so there wasn't the kind of thing that you could do today easily. Everything was a physical, practical effect. And pre-production on this thing was happening in 1973 and early 1974, and then the film itself began principal photography in May 1974 on a budget of $3.5 million with a shooting schedule of 55 days. Wow. Yeah, 55 days to do what had never, ever been done before, a massive practical effects mechanical shark movie filmed in the actual open ocean. 
prior to this film, any kind of underwater, you know, effects scene was done in a big tank or a pool in Hollywood. But Spielberg was like, no, 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 we got to do this like on the ocean for believability. So can you imagine how bad the movie would have been if it had been done today? Oh, yeah. It looked like Sharktopus versus Whale Wolf. Yeah, absolutely. Which is a terrible movie, but kind of funny and has ties to Nexium, by the way. Sharktopus versus Whale Wolf because Catherine Oxenberg, mother of India Oxenberg, and her former stepdad, Casper Van Dien, are both in that movie. And it is terrible. I have seen it. I have seen it. Yeah. But like 55 days, basically, to do literally something that was impossible up to this point. Oh, did I also mention that Steven Spielberg kind of hated the initial script adaptation that Peter Benchley did of his book? Really? Yeah. Yeah, he reckoned all the characters were just too damn unlikable for anyone to get invested in them not being turned into chum by a modern megalodon. Like, for instance, in the book, Hooper has an affair with Ellen Brody, the chief's wife, and everybody's just kind of a dick. And, you know, the first basically two thirds of the book is all this character development. And it's just the last third that's like, let's go hunt a shark. And that was the part that everybody was like, yeah, that's going to make a good movie. And also in the book, Hooper dies. Now, again, I hope this isn't considered a spoiler since, come on, guys, you've had 45 goddamn years to see this movie. But if you will recall in the movie, Hooper survives. And I'll tell you all about how that craziness came about later. And it is a bizarre doozy of a tale. It involves a little person versus Australian murder sharks. And it's it's crazy pants. But yeah, essentially, there were several uh, script doctors that were brought in to make the characters more relatable and make the, the script basically tighter and writer and more exciting. And thanks to a serious gulf between what actually you know, what worked on the page, what looked good as a concept, and what in reality worked with a recalcitrant mechanical shark and the goddamn Atlantic Ocean. (laughs) Essentially, an enormous part of the script was being written on set as the movie was being filmed. I believe Richard Dreyfuss said something to the effect of like, when we started filming, we had no script and we had no shark. So, (laughs) yeah. This was going to go great. So great. Uh, And in case in point, Quint's famous monologue about the USS Indianapolis that we talked about in our previous episode, it's, it's, that is even a very murky parentage. So Peter Benchley originally based the character of Quint on a sport fisherman and then later in his life, shark conservationist named Frank Mundus. Yes, that's his name. Thank you. I referenced him previously. Yes. He had a fascinating life yes didn't he though yeah he he was a man of adventure like Hemingway would be like tip of the sailors cap to you my friend but Mundus as far as I could tell never even served in the navy that I could discover Mm -mm. and it was actually playwright Howard Sackler who was one of the writers brought in to kind of work on the script who came up with Quint having this tragic backstory of the USS Indianapolis to explain his Ahab-like devotion to shark homicide. It was basically, he needed to have a reason for the revenge, which was the horror that he had witnessed and suffered at the jaws of all these sharks floating in the open ocean, right? Mm -hmm. And then the monologue itself was in part rewritten by the actor who played Quint, 
Robert Shaw, who was also a playwright, and he was a method actor. Of course he was. He was dedicated to his craft, and so he decided to get his ass roaring off his ass drunk on the day they were going to shoot that scene so that he could really bring the realism to the slurred words and like big sloppy hand gestures of the genuinely intoxicated. Well, turns out as fine as an actor as Robert Shaw was, and he was, and as accomplished a drinker as he was in real life. And he was. Yeah, he did about as well with that scene as you would imagine someone three sheets to the wind would do. (laughs) Right. So after he sobered up and he saw the rushes for that day, he was embarrassed. He was deeply chagrined and he was like, oh my God, I fucked up. I'm super sorry. And then he shot the scene sober the next day and it totally, he totally nailed it. I mean, who would have thunk it? It turns out, you guys, that like just acting sometimes works great. Just act. You're an actor. I'm looking at you, Daniel Day-Lewis, and I'm totally looking at you, creepy Jared Leto. Side note, as we spoke about earlier, like, notice all the famous method actors who behave like total freaks to their fellow cast and crew were, by and large, dudes. They were men. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, women would never be allowed to get away with that, but I'm an artiste, so it's okay that I left a dead pigeon in your trailer and refused to beige or breath my teeth teeth for 44 days kind of bullshit. Right? Yeah. But, you know, I digress. I digress. So, yeah, let's talk Mechanical Shark, you guys. First of all, the shark had a name. You know it. Bruce. Bruce. Yep, it was Bruce. And it was named for Steven Spielberg's lawyer, Bruce Raymer. So there you go. Didn't they name the shark in Finding Nemo Bruce after Bruce the shark? They did indeed. Uh... Yep. And there wasn't just one giant mechanical shark made for the movie. There were several. There was even a left shark and a right shark for filming scenes. What up, Katy Perry? Uh, shark. Yep, that re- and they were done so they could be for shots that required more specialized movements since the sharks could be filmed from just one <laughs> side. Oh, left shark definitely had some special movements. Right? Well, so what, what the deal was, they would be filmed from the side so that the other side that was off camera could be full of all these tubes and wires and, you know, all this pneumatic stuff and engines to basically move the shark up out of the water and, you know, kind of allow them to be more easily operated. So the full body shark was 25 feet long. It weighed 1,208 pounds, and it was known as the sea sled shark because it was basically on this big giant sled with this kind of gantry crane that raised it up and down inside of it. And the belly of it was open so that it could have all this like mechanical stuff inside of it. And it could be pulled through the ocean with a 300-foot tow line. And the side sharks were also on platforms that could be raised and lowered out of the water somewhat. But again, they're in, they're literally in the open Atlantic Ocean. And they were built in California, and then they were trucked across country to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts, which was chosen to stand in for the fictional Amity Island, New York, because both its appearance, because it kind of looks like a less posh tourist beach town, so that you could reliably look at that and think, okay, this would, you know, having a shark in the water would absolutely destroy the local economy, right? So another reason that they picked Martha's Vineyard 
uh, as a stand-in was that the... Wait a minute. I, I just got to say, can you imagine seeing those electronic sharks being moved oh. across country? Like, I, I want to be the suburban next to them with that wood-paneled suburban next to them where you look over and see this giant mechanical shark driving down the highway on a flatbed. Shark's like, how you doing? How you doing? Shark. Yeah. Well, the locals at Martha's Vineyard also lost their goddamn minds like people flooded in to watch this going on and like just were really fascinated by it and according to richard dreyfus boy howdy everybody was partying and having a whole lot of crazy 1970s sexy times wow during the the filming so yeah you know it was good it's a good time for to be robert you know to be robert shaw a good time to be uh, richard dreyfus I think Robert Shaw was drinking. I think it was Richard Dreyfus. It was like, hello, ladies. I mean, uh, the young Richard Dreyfus? I would hit that. Yeah. 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 So they also picked it because that area around Cape Cod is like it's a sandy shoal kind of thing, which means that the bottom was never lower than about 35 feet for about 12 miles out around the island, which turns out to be super useful given that the shark platform capsized, requiring divers to go down and, like, haul back up. And at one point, one of the two boats that was portraying the orca also started to capsize with the cast and crew on it. Oh, my God. Uh, Yeah, because one of the... So one of the prop boats was actually designed to fake sink and then be raised back up multiple times for the actual, like, scenes when it's being shot sinking. Mm-hmm. But this particular situation was on the not-meant-to-sink orca. And what had happened was one of the cables that was attached to a prop barrel was yanked too hard, and it actually pulled a section of the hull out. Oh, my God. Yeah. So as the boat's, like, filling up with water, the cast and crew and all that real expensive equipment is quickly being hauled over to one of the nearby rescue boats, with one of the sound techs basically saying, screw the actors, save the recording equipment. That sounds like Hollywood, yeah. Yeah, and they were able to very slowly and carefully tow the boat that was rapidly filling with water into shore in order to uh, to repair it. So that was cool. So in the end, because so many of the scripted shots of the shark just weren't going to happen because of all these technical issues... The film ended up honestly being a lot better and yep. more frightening and suspenseful because of that. I, I think of it as like the chopped kind of thing where it's like you have four random ingredients and you just got to make something amazing out of it. Go. And sometimes that results in absolute like garbage on the plate. But sometimes it all comes together and it just kind of makes for just a really, a really good situation and that's what that's what jaws jaws did here well hitchcock was a master at suspense by letting the person's imagination absolutely run away with them right and that's what happened with jaws because they couldn't show the shark exactly why i had said can you imagine how bad it would be if they made it today with technology to actually show the things they would want it to absolutely it's like whatever your mind can fill in is always going to be so much more terrifying than any cgi or rubber monster that you see Mm. in the light of day on the screen and here's so this is one example 
there just wasn't a shark. They literally didn't have any shark. They had not even a prop shark available when they filmed the opening scene where the ill-fated Chrissy goes skinny dipping and then is devoured by the shark. So all you see are the stunt woman, who was also, interestingly enough, a former wiki-watchy mermaid, Susan Backliney, and she's being dragged around, and he kind of got a little bit almost waterboarded and drowned in this scene while being filmed. Uh, She's being dragged around with cables under the water, and you never see the shark. You just see her body being like viscerally jerked around and you can focus then on her fear and and on her face and on wondering what the fuck is going on under that water that neither you nor she can see that she's being slowly devoured you know like that that is such a great suspenseful moment and then add to that that like the, the freaky music behind it like it's just it comes together perfectly it really does. And can you imagine pitching that score, though? Yep. Yeah, yeah, I've got the best score for this. Dun-na, dun-na. But again, like with the whole Alfred Hitchcock thing, think about the wink, 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 wink from Psycho. It's that same just like visceral, like grabs you in your amygdala noise that just kind of makes you like, oh, my God, what's happening? And it's it's perfect. So that that John Williams score, Jaws would not I think that that was like the perfect icing on this cake is that that score to it. It definitely was. Oh, yeah, definitely was. And it brings back this whole thing that we have been referencing repeatedly more is not always better in the film world strip that bad boy down and there are though some real live sharks that were actually filmed for the movie in fact at the beginning of planning the the shark in jaws there was some talk of actually training a great white shark and then actual sane people were like the fuck you idiots that's no girl no so that oh. didn't happen, but... Were they going to put freaking laser beams on They were, they were. No, in the, they were going to get... See, if it was today, they would just put Andy Circus in a green wetsuit with, like, ping pong balls, like, <laughs> taped to him, and he'd just make him swim around in a pool, and that would be it. But, um, no, um, so in the, in the scene where Hooper, Richard Dreyfus, bravely goes down under the orca in a shark cage which is then subsequently torn to pieces by the shark, by, by theoretically Bruce, that really happened, but not really happened. So what had happened, what had happened was well-known marine biologists and shark conservationists, Ron and Valerie Taylor, worked on that scene in the waters off the beautifully named Dangerous Reef in South Australia. Oh my God. Props, I know, props to you, Australia, for accuracy in, in nomenclature. I mean, seriously, kudos on that one. So since the great whites in that area were very large, as in like 15 to 16 feet long, which is a typical size for them, they're still nowhere near the size of the 25-foot mega shark that they were trying to depict in Jaws. The idea then was to get a little person who was also a diver and a stuntman to go into a scaled down purpose-built shark cage so as to make the actual great whites look bigger. Right. So let's just put a little person. Yeah. I know you know what my face is doing right now. Oh, oh yeah. 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 
so unfortunately, and I love when I start so unfortunately in a sentence, a couple of things happened to make that go totally and completely off the rails. So first of all, the scaled down scuba tanks that were supplied to the four foot nine inch stuntman did not have enough air to allow this poor guy to breathe down there for more than a few minutes, which they didn't realize Oops. until he was underwater. Oops. Yeah, I'm I'm not even, I'm like just five feet. I breathe as much as like a big tall motherfucker. I have lungs too. It's not like because you're little, you don't breathe, right? The lungs are the same for the most part. We, we do need air. It's important. And this was dumb. So at least they figured that out before this poor bastard drowned, right. right? So, you know, he was able to come to the surface. He was fine. But he couldn't be down there with those mini tanks for more than, like, 10 minutes tops. And this guy was also not really used to diving with sharks. And he was getting really freaked out by the dangerous stunt he was about to be performing. Like, what sounded good on paper when he was actually on the boat, he was like, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck, you guys don't even know how much oxygen I need. I don't really trust this. And I don't blame this man. One, I'd have been like, nah, nah, I'm breaking the fight. No, you can't pay me enough. I don't want to die. And he was on, on the ship, like, genuinely hesitating, like, ah, while they were trying to jolly him into getting to the water after they had put the that mini cage lowered into the shark-infested waters. And they're throwing out chum, and they're getting the sharks all excited, and he's like, um, I don't know. And then a shark, a great white, swam over the top of the cage, and he got all tangled up in the cables and just started to thrash around wildly to get free. And just just destroyed this fucking cage in the process. <laughs> right? And had, yeah, had this little short stuntman been in the cage, that man would have mm-hmm. drowned. So yeah, kids, gift of fear. If you think, you know, maybe I could die doing the stunt, go with your gut, live to dive another day, people. But the footage that they managed to get with the underwater cameras during this time was so cool that they were like, oh, man, we got to use this. But the downside was there was nobody in the cage. So you just see the shark ripping apart an empty cage. So what they did instead was they rewrote the script. And they had Hooper escape the cage before the shark destroyed it and survive at the bottom of the ocean in order to kind of pop up at the end after Brody had exploded the big fish to help him float to shore at the end of the movie. Well, I'll be damned. Yeah, so good on you, Richard Dreyfus. You survived because a real short stuntman was like, I don't want to die today, you know? Nice. And I'm good on the short stuntman for being like, I don't want to die today. Right? Like, kudos. Don't die for no. movies. Don't do it. Not no. worth it. Yeah, you don't you don't need to be going uh going into a shark infested. No, you you really just don't don't do it. Don't go Cecil be demented. Don't do it. <laughs> so in the end, Jaws, which was supposed to wrap filming after 55 days, took 159 days to shoot. <laughs> yep. Including some last minute scenes that were filmed in the backyard Hollywood swimming pool of editor Verna Fields. 
uh, to show the head of, of the uh, Ben Gardner, who became a shark snack, floating out of the side of his chomped up fishing boat. Oh. They basically took powdered milk into the and poured it into the pool to make it all murky, and then they covered the pool with a tarp to block out the bright California sun and make it look like it was the murky waters off the coast of Cape Cod and shot this rubber head floating out of the side of a boat. Wow. Yeah. And the $3.5 million original budget, it had ballooned to $9 million, almost tripling. Yeah. And Spielberg basically figured, yeah, let's go back to school, learn accounting, because my career is over. Yeah. But then a miracle happened. It was Audiences. Oh, it was huge. Audiences went bananas for this film. And Jaws ended up raking in, can you guess how much in just like, we're, we're talking like box office, like at like actual movie box office. $22 million. $472 million. Holy shit. In 1970s Holy dollars. Holy shit. So the gross that Jaws and the Jaws franchise has made to date in today's money, over $2 billion. Wow, no wonder they yep. keep on doing them. It, that's it. It's pretty worth all the gray hairs and, you know, bloated neoprene fake shark drama for the production team. And it is, in fact, the second most financially successful film franchise after Star Wars. Wow. And it did go on to inspire a whole shit ton of other films like Piranha, which uh, is delightful, as is Piranha 2, if you want a Richard Corman, super tacky, dear God, this is awful, fun time at the movies. Uh, I recommend those. And then other fine films, classics, such as Orca, Grizzly, Mako, The Jaws of Death, Barracuda, Alligator, Day of the Animals, Tintorera, and Eaten Alive. So I've given you your summer stay indoors and don't get the COVID viewing list. And then it also did go on to inspire actually really great movies like Alien. How did it inspire Alien? Just the idea of this big, terrifying, relentless monster hmm. kind of just hunting a group of people on a ship. Interesting. And also, I think people, like the filmmakers pitched it as like, it'll be like Jaws, but in space, where no one can hear you scream. And the other, like, my favorite thing that it, theoretically inspired was the Japanese movie House, also known as Haosu. So, I don't know if you've ever seen Haosu. Guys. You got guys. Go rent it. Do it. You're only cheating yourself if you don't see it. Uh, It was made in the late 1970s and it is OMG WTF BBQ Japan. Yeah. Like, it's cuckoo banana pants. It is it is you watch this film and you're like, am I high? Is everyone high? Are we all high? Uh, the producers essentially were like, hey, dude, make me a Jaws. Make us a Jaws. Jaws us to the filmmaker. And he was like, cool, I can make us a Jaws. And then just said to his teenage daughter, hey, write me a script like you do. And then nothing that had anything to do with anything that you would say, oh, yes, Jaws occurred. Except I will say there are a lot of disembodied body parts dancing around, and there is that whole ocean of blood situation. But yeah, I, I dare you. I, I'm, I'm going to set this as your homework, uh, intrepid listeners. 
rent house, aka houseu, and tell me if you see anything that says Jaws to you in it. Anything, because I yeah. Yeah, I I would not. Had you asked me, I would not have pointed to Jaws as any Jaws. sort of inspiration there, ever. And there, there are a ton of foreign films that cashed in on the whole Jaws thing that are all just like, the fuck? So, like, anytime you can find yourself a bad 1970s Jaws or 80s Jaws ripoff, it's, it's going to be a fun time. A good time, no, but a fun time. Uh, at the movies, so I, I highly recommend it. And that is my goofy story uh, behind the making of Jaws. Do you remember that episode of South Park where they were trying to get the kids to stop liking a specific, um, it was like a, a take on Pokemon, and they took them to this uh, testing center where they would try out all of these other toys, and each one they would try out, they'd start it with a commercial intro that was like, hi kids do you like whatever it's called and each time they were like yeah and they're like you'll love white trash steve and it had absolutely nothing to do with this reference and they were like eh (laughs) or trailer park steve and watch him with his kung fu action wife smacking grip and it was it was just absolutely ridiculous that is what you're getting that is exactly, yes. Yeah. Now, if you do want to watch a movie, like you're like, wow, this sounded really interesting to me. May I suggest the feature-length documentary made by Super Jaws fans called The Shark is Still Working? It's actually quite enjoyable, and you can just find it like for freezies on YouTube. Nice. And it is quite, quite delightful. And I don't know if this actually happened, but uh, because it happened during the, the, the pandemic, but um, there was actually a musical retelling of the behind the scenes about Jaws called Bruce. And it was set to premiere this summer, but I don't know that it did because, again, the COVID. But look for that, you know, look for that. Uh, and, yeah, and if you actually want to see the replica, like the actual Bruce, a replica of the, the shark itself, there uh, they did make one that is now in place at the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures that you can, you know, enjoy observing and actually see how it all worked together. So when you can travel, you could totally go do that. Awesome. Cool. That was awesome. Thank you. Yeah, that's my that's my shark story. I love it. So yeah, go out and watch Jaws, people. Come on. I may do that. And well, I'm finishing my packing. Anyway, we have one other thing, some end of the cast business to tell you all about that you will appreciate. And this is a throwback. And uh, thank you to our listener, Jennifer Cannon, for sending this in. So awesome. But you all remember Bev. 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 The wine that dared you to text her. Uh, yep. Bev with the shoulder Bev. pads and the big hair. Well, Jennifer took the dare and she texted yes. Bev. And uh, what she did is sent me a screenshot saying that says taking the dare as she texted her. And she got back a link from Bev. And it says, hey, girl, it's your girl, Bev. Save my number. Let's be friends. Oh, you've never texted a can of wine before? 
first time for everything winky face we'd like to share happenings from hq monthly horoscopes and an occasional secret invite and weekly encouragement click the link so i can save your number two xx bev wow i'm just like damn like like the social media behind that just wow i mean I'm more of a Nihilist Arby's Twitter account person myself, or the Steakums, wherein, like, woke Steakums happens, which is amazing. Marxist Steakums. But, like, that, that's, yeah, that's special. That's a special. Yeah. Yep. I love it. I love that Brev is trying to put some positivity back into the world instead Brev. of just, like, uh, I don't know, winos and broken dreams. I don't know. Yeah. Brev. Yeah. Brev. Brev. Anyway, so thank you again, Jennifer. That was delightful. If anyone else would like to email us, please hit us up at disturbinginterest at gmail.com. You can always reach out to us on Twitter at podcast underscore DI, Facebook, the Disturbing Interest Podcast, and Instagram, DI Podcast. Uh, for our Facebook and our Instagram, you are going to be reaching Lynn. For our email and our Twitter, you're going to be reaching me. So pick your poison. Yep. Uh, we love hearing from you, and we always share it with the other one, too. Tell us your shark stories. Tell, yes. tell me your shark bullshit. I want to know. I'm here for shark shit. Yes. Like, so much so that my, my, did I ever tell you that my phone recommends at least three different shark stories to me a week? <laughs> I like to assume that your ringtone is na 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 Okay, for my airbender friends out there, you will appreciate this. My ringtone is secret tunnel, secret tunnel. But mine is um the the theme from Pacific Rim because I'm a special kind of nerd. I'm a special yeah. kind of nerd. I have an obscure one-off song from an anime that was finished over a decade ago. Nerd um, alert. Yeah. Nerd yeah. alert. However, every time my phone rings, I laugh. Oh, I have no... I have, I always have it on silent because I'm like, oh my god. A ring? Oh my god, in public? Oh no. No, couldn't have that. So yeah. I, yeah. Nice. Nice. All right. And it's you're going to get me next week because uh, poor Regina is in the throes of moving hell and boxes and shit. So God bless. Godspeed. I hope your stuff gets across town without too much roaring and screaming. Yeah, me too. I hate, I hate it so much. And they don't toss it in the pool. Cause you you got a pool. Yeah, an indoor That's pool. That's exciting. That indoor is pool. exciting. Yeah, that is yeah. the one exciting thing. Which, speaking of, I better... Get back to packing up the rest Shoving of my Shoving shit in boxes. Yes. Yep. And I will, I'll, it'll be me next week. And I'm going to tell you the most horrifying story where nobody dies that I possibly can with the stupidest, but also most, oh my fucking God, criminals you've ever heard of. And the 70s. Yeah. So you're going to love it. Yeah. You go to the 70s a lot. I go to the I 1920s do. a lot. I'm not sure uh -oh. why we gravitate towards those eras. I'm from the 70s. Like I was born in the latter half of the 70s. So I think it's like a like a memory, a secret, like, you know, internal memory of the 70s for me. But yeah, no, this story is wild and upsetting. And like, I expect everyone to be like, the fuck at the end of it. So I'm pretty, pretty stoked about this. If you have any degree of um, fear of being buried alive, 
uh, this is going to be just a great time for you. I have that fear, so I'm super excited for myself over the next couple weeks of research. Super excited. <laughs> I can't wait to get those text messages. Oh, Jesus, God. It's going to be great. It's things I do for our listeners. Yes. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, remember, take care of each other. And remember, you might be disturbed, but... You're not battling a 25-foot pneumatic shark in the middle of Martha's Vineyard. And you're not alone. Thanks for listening, friends. Please remember to like, subscribe, and tell a friend. And check us out on social media. On Facebook, we are The Disturbing Interest Podcast. Twitter, podcast underscore DI. Instagram, DI Podcast. Or if you really want to send us something... You can send it to our P.O. Box at 70515 Seattle, Washington, 98127.